Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. Years ago, I heard a story of a man who worked in a factory and he asked for an appointment with his pastor one day. And so in his pastor's office, uh, it was clear to the pastor that this man was broken. He was distraught about something. So he said, talk to me, Uh, why did you want to meet? And he said, well, you know, I work in a steel factory. And he said, this last week, a tragedy happened. One of our coworkers was killed in an accident. Said some of the hot molten steel fell on him, splattered on him, and he was so badly burned, it was obvious that he was not gonna make it. Said the whole factory got quiet while this guy was screaming in pain, and he yelled out, Would someone help me? Would someone please help me? I'm dying, I know it, and I'm not ready. Would someone please help me? And the pastor said, well, you're a Christian. Were you able to pray with him? Were you able to talk to him about Jesus? And he said, no, pastor, that's why I wanted to meet with you. He said, you don't know this about me, but at work, I'm a completely different person than you know me at church. He said, at work, I swear with the best of them, I tell dirty jokes, I, I, I live a really foul life. And he said, so at that moment, when I was, felt a prompting to try and help this guy, I realized that I had no credibility to talk about Jesus. And he said, my life closed my lips. I have never forgotten reading that story. And the reason why I bring that up is not to be a great big downer at the beginning of this message, but to say that this man understood the connection between how we live and our witness in this world. And that idea of witness is what we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians 9 today. And I want to try and show that Paul gives a very hope-filled way, a better way to be a witness in this world. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 27. And if you didn't bring a Bible and you want to use one of the black Bibles, hopefully it's nearby in one of the seat racks near you, you can turn to page 929. Now, as you're turning there, if you haven't been with us, we've been in this series where we're studying 1 Corinthians this year. In fact, today is the last day of studying 1 Corinthians for the summer. We're going to look at the names of God starting next week and then come back to 1 Corinthians and finish the last seven chapters in September. But uh, again, as we think about this, we've called this series a better way. And uh, here has been the series sentence we've used uh, again and again. In this letter, Paul shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. And so way, way back in February when we started this series, we started looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and I mentioned that day when I spoke that the word that stood out to me was the word called. In verse 2, it says that we've been called to be his holy people, along with everyone else who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus in this world, and that we've been called into fellowship with his Son. That you and I can walk around every day if we've trusted Christ with a sense of calling. That our life has a sense of purpose. That it's bigger than just about us. It's bigger than just about us and Jesus. It's big. But it's a calling. 
And so as we think about that calling and we think about the better way to live out that calling, I want to mention here, if you're following along in the notes, that here's Jesus' call. Jesus' call in Acts 1-8 and other places is, you'll be my witness in but not of the world. You'll be my witness. In other words, as Steve showed a couple weeks ago, in John 17, right before Christ went to the cross, he prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, I, I pray not that you'll take them out of this world, but as they live in this world, help them not to be of this world. What does that mean? To be of the same spirit that this world has. Help their lives to stand out. He would also say in Matthew 5, he would say, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its potency, if salt has lost its saltness, how can it have the influence that it's meant to have? And so the question is not, do I have a witness? What kind of witness do I have? And when we think about that, uh, it, it reminds us that there, there's a responsibility here. That as we live in the world, it's important that we not be of the world like that factory worker, but that we learn how to live a better way. And so uh, Acts 1.8, he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth is a big, big calling. Now, I, I bring this up as well because when we think about this message title called My Witness, it's kind of a play on words. Jesus says you'll be my witness, but he also uh, encourages us to think about, hey, what is my witness like? Is it healthy? Is it potent? Is it weakening? Is it going to be clear enough that someone would say, that helped point me to Jesus? That helped encourage me in Jesus. And so if you're following along, my witness, if you're wondering what that means, is how I live as Jesus' representative in this world. How I live as Jesus' representative in this world. I quote Colossians 3.17 that says, Therefore, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. When it says in the name of the Lord Jesus, maybe this would help to see what the New Living Translation says as well. It says, and whatever you do or say, notice, not just at church, not just on your best day, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Again, that grateful heart that we're even allowed to be his witnesses. None of us deserve it, but that privilege, that high calling. And so as a representative of the Lord Jesus. And that just reminds us that our witness is representative of Jesus in this world. The question is, what kind of representation is it? Is it one that is humble? Is it one that's teachable? Is it one that's attractive? Or is it one that actually is contradictory? And I just need to tell you, I really need this reminder this week. I've, I've just noticed, uh, you know, I've walked with the Lord long enough to know that I have this kind of relationship with him sometimes. It's not just straight and up and to the right all the time. And so I've noticed that the longer I walk with Christ, the easier it is for me to become careless. The easier it is for me to act like I know enough. And so just a great reminder. Now, Steve and Brian have been teaching on 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 the last couple of weeks, and this continues that. It will continue even when we come to chapter 10 next fall. But it's this idea of how do we handle our freedom? Like, here's why we need this message. In the United States, especially because we've been blessed with such great freedoms and such great rights, 
If we're not careful, we can love those more than we love Jesus. We can let those make us become so soft that we no longer are able to serve Christ wholeheartedly. And so the challenge that Paul is writing into this context is, hey, here's how you have to learn how to use your freedoms and your rights. Are you willing to surrender those at times? Are you willing to forego or curtail those for the sake of the call? Because there will be times when those will clash and you'll have to make a decision. And so how do we do that? And this, again, this text is going to show us how we can be a witness and how to steward our witness in the world. So would you pray with me? And then let's see what Paul teaches us. Now, Lord, I thank you that you would even let me preach your word. And I pray that you'll help each one of us consider what our witness is in this world. And if there's any here that don't yet know you, I pray that this message would even be helpful to them as they consider what a relationship with you might look like. And I thank you, God, for your word, which endures forever and is sharper. It's living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It can go right to the place it needs to go in our lives. Would you please do that today? Myself included. And everyone agreed and said, amen. Now, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read verses 19 through 23 first. Uh, as we think about how Paul stewards his witness in this world. And the thing is, he's writing this to try and tell the Corinthians, I'm doing this because I want to challenge you to think about how your witness is in Corinth right there. And I want you to think about that. So he uses this. And then we'll read verses 24 through 27 a little bit later. So would you start by reading the first gray box? There is verse 19. And then when we come to verse 22, that's found in the second gray box. That way we can all read out loud together and hear God's word. I'll read the verses in between. But let's start with verse 19 in that first gray box. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Then he goes on in verse 20. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Now would you read verse 22, the rest of it with me in that second gray box, please? I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. In verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. The first thing I want you to notice about how Paul stewards his witness in this world is that it's clear that Christ has changed how Paul sees himself and gives himself. Christ has changed how Paul sees himself and gives himself. Again, I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, but the Apostle Paul was as religious as they come. He was the most extra credit Jewish person that's ever lived. This guy was, went after the strictest form of the religion he could possibly do. But the way he saw himself, in all honesty, was that he was superior. He saw himself as self-righteous. He saw himself and the way he gave himself to that Really, even though it looked like he was about God, it was about him. Now when he meets Christ on a Damascus road, all that begins to change. And the way he sees himself now is as a person who doesn't deserve to be called by God, but has been called by God. 
who has a responsibility and a privilege now to point people to Jesus. And now he gives himself to that very purpose. Some of you know that he was a prejudiced, prejudiced person before. Racial pride of being Jewish. He called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He called himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees, which meant the most religious in the Jewish religion you could be. That was the way. Now he sees himself and he gives himself different. And here's the language he uses in that first verse. He says, I've made myself a slave, though I'm free. Christ, by dying on the cross, rising again and saving me, has now set me free. Now I'm free to do whatever I want. Yes, because I'm no longer enslaved by sin, but it's not so much free to do whatever I want, free to do what I couldn't do before, and that was obey God from the heart. Now I'm free to do that. I'm free to do what I ought, not so much I'm free to do what I want. And as he begins to live this out, it's an amazing thing, and and he actually hearkens back to words Jesus said when he uses the word slave. And I just need to say something to you, a couple things. In verse 17, before we read these verses, he uses a word there when he talks about uh, fulfilling a trust. It's, it means a house steward, a house manager. So Paul realized my life is no longer my own. Now I oversee the responsibilities I do for another. It's not my house, I'm a house steward. I'm a house manager. But also he uses this word slave. When we think of slave, we think of the terrible slavery that our country shamefully did. Well, I'm not talking about that kind of slavery here. When Paul was alive, slavery, two-thirds of the population in the Roman world were slaves. But it was a different kind of slavery. It wasn't the kind of slavery we read about in our history. It was often a way that educated, some slaves were incredibly educated. They were paid. There were things like that. It's just that they didn't own their own freedom uh, to do some of the things they wanted. But many times that slavery was different. Now Paul says, I'm a grateful slave of the Lord Jesus. I will serve him in any way he wants me to. I made myself a slave. And Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must become a servant if you want to be the kind of person God makes you be a slave to everyone. It's an interesting language. It flips the world on its head. The second thing is, is notice, and Christ has transformed how Paul sees and loves people. Christ has transformed how Paul sees and loves people. As I was mentioning before, because of his racial pride and his racial prejudice, that meant that he regularly ran into people he couldn't stand. That meant that he got so amped up that he actually persecuted Christians. Why? Because he was so proud of being Jewish that anybody that opposed him being Jewish or opposed Judaism, he would have them arrested. He would, uh, we read how even he was holding the coats of those that stoned the first Christian martyr, Stephen, nodding approvingly. That's how much hate was in his heart. That's how much pride was in his heart. But when he met Christ... Christ changed the way he looked at every person. Now he looked at every person as someone for whom Christ died. He said, that person, God cares just as much about that person as he cares about me. Jesus died for them, not just me. And also he began to see he had a love in his heart. One of the people that we recently baptized in this church has told me they just can't get over the love they have for people now. And they realized that came from Jesus. Jesus is working in their life in a different way. And so when, they, when he began to think that way now, he realized that his life affected other people. 
He couldn't just do what he wanted anymore without influencing and affecting people for good or for ill. Years ago, when I was in college, there was a TV show called The Phil Donahue Show. I know I'm dating myself here, but out of Chicago. And Phil Donahue was proud of how obnoxious he could be at times with his guests. So one uh, week, he took his, you know, his show from the Chicago studio out to Las Vegas in the lobby of a great big casino. And his guest that day, I remember this clearly, was Billy Graham. And so as he's interviewing Billy Graham, they're having a, just a, a fun kind of interview, an honest kind of interview, and he finally just decides to push some buttons, and he says, come on, Billy. He said, what would be so wrong with you going into that room next door and pulling that one-armed bandit or going to the blackjack table? What's so bad about gambling anyway? Billy Graham, I'll never forget his answer. He says, you know, I could do that. I'm, I'm free to do that. But he says, I never will because I don't want anyone to fall into that kind of slavery and that kind of craziness because they watched me. He had a love for people that he didn't even know because of Christ giving him a different sense of calling. And notice this, that he willingly offers himself first to the Lord, then to others. He willingly offers himself first to the Lord, then to others. Friends, if you and I get that order wrong, it will always mess us up. If I give myself first to people and then the Lord, I will be resentful if those people don't appreciate me. But when I give myself first to the Lord, then if he directs me to serve any other person, whether they appreciate it or respond or not, I am yielded to him. And so 2 Corinthians 8, 5 says, they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. That is the way. And so he just says, I became a slave out of gratitude to Christ in order to serve other people. And now I see myself here, not just for myself, but for other people. If you're following along, Paul looks for ways to reach out and relate to everyone. Paul looks for ways to reach out and relate to everyone. And can I just be totally honest here? This is where I see an incredible changing trend in the United States. There is less and less intentionality in reaching out to other people. There is a passivity that has happened in our country that says, I'll wait for them to come to me. I'll wait for them to reach out first. And friends, I'm not saying there's not moments for that. But if that's the overall pattern of our lives, we're in trouble. Jesus made the first move. He did not wait for us. Praise God. And he wants to instill that same spirit that we're the first one to reach out a hand. That we're the first one to say, hello, tell me about you rather than waiting for people to always do that. And Paul went from this person that was prejudiced, that was just all about himself, to a person that now said, I don't, know, I don't know if you're Jewish. I don't know if you're Gentile. I don't know if you're weak. It doesn't matter. You matter to God. Therefore, I'm going to look for a way to reach out and relate to you in some way if we cross paths. And when you and I have that kind of heart, the watching world will take notice if they know it's coming from the motive of Jesus living in us. And that can be a different kind of spirit. Notice that along with that same idea, <clears throat> he finds common ground without compromising the message. He finds common ground without compromising the message. Uh, he's not a chameleon. He's not a compromiser. He's a bridge builder. 
So he looks for ways like that. In fact, I love what 1 Corinthians 9.22 says in the New Living Translation. I think we have it here. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. In other words, he's not just saying, I just try and find common ground. No, I try to find common ground so that I might have an opportunity in the context of their life after showing that I appreciate exactly where they are of how Christ might make a difference in their life. And so he's saying, I, I, I seek to, rather than find out how different we are only, I try and find out, is there anything that we might be able to relate to each other? Uh, uh, some, of, some of you may remember in the last 15 years, we've had a guy named Tom Randall come and speak several times. And uh, if, if you've never heard him, the important thing is, is that I got to know him in high school when we worked at the same grocery store. And uh, he's a fascinating guy. He, he was raised on the streets of Detroit. He was, he was, a, he was a swindler. He was a, 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 you know, a, a huckster kind of guy before Christ came into his life. And, um, and so he knew a lot about the streets. But when he and I worked at the grocery store, what fascinated me is that once he came to know Christ, he looked for every way he could relate to people through basketball and through uh, things that he learned. And how do you and I find out common ground? By listening. He took interest in people, not just to manipulate them or coerce them, but to, to love them. And so what happened is, I remember a couple stories. One is that he <clears throat> found out that one of his coworkers loved a certain band, but he couldn't afford the tickets to a certain concert. So Tom found a way, even though he didn't have a lot of cash himself, to buy tickets for this guy to that concert in Chicago for him and his wife, and then said, we'll watch your little kids while you go to the concert. Now, I don't know if that, that guy, his coworker, ever ended up trusting Christ, but I can promise you, he never forgot that. Because he realized this guy, had, you were listening, you realized the common ground that we share is that, you know, so he, I, as I recall, he actually gave his tickets to this guy because he was planning to go. That's the common ground he had. The second thing I remember is that um, he was uh, getting to know one, one guy in, in work there, and uh, he said, hey, why don't you uh, come and play pool with us tonight uh, at this uh, pool bar here? And, and so he said, okay. So he goes and he watches for a while and he notices that they're playing for money. And, he, and Tom had grown up on the streets of Detroit. He was an unbelievable pool player. So he starts thinking, okay, I know pool. So he decides when it's his turn, he says, okay, uh, could, I, could I make a wager? They go, sure. He says, <clears throat> if I win then all of you have to read the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. <laughs> this is in a bar. They're all gone. It says, but if I lose, I'll buy every one of you beers like you guys are doing already. He ran the table. <laughs> and this guy started reading the Gospel of Mark. He read the Gospel of Luke. Somewhere in the midst of all that, he met Jesus. But it was all because Tom was looking for a way to try and reach out and relate find common ground. And again, friends, this can be messy, right? This is why many of us don't reach out and relate, but notice that it made a difference in people's lives because they could tell this guy was more about Jesus than he was about himself. And so the other thing I want you to see is that his hope is to win or coerce, not coerce as many as possible to Jesus. His hope is to win, not coerce, as many as possible to Jesus. This is important because sometimes when he says that I might win, that I might win, that I might win, it sounds like an imperialistic kind of thing where I'm better than them, so I'll win them. 
But it, it's, it's more this idea, not a pushing people to something, but being winsome, attracting people to things because of the quality of our life and the quality of our genuine love for them that Jesus gives us. Um, years ago, I read a story by a lady named Ann Kimmel. She wrote a book called I'm Out to Change My World. And uh, she had a youth group uh, many years ago, and so she writes about one experience when she was the youth group leader. She said one kid, his name was John, walked around with his head down all the time. He never looked you in the eye, and if you ever got close to him, he shuddered. One day, John wasn't there at youth group, and I said to the kids, let's try an experiment. Let's really love John. I mean, let's really love John. As we've never loved anyone before, let's just see what Jesus' love can do for John. He was the most inhibited, insecure kid I'd ever seen in my life. And from that moment on, we asked Jesus to help us love John. Every time he came into a room, everyone wanted to sit by John. We sent him letters. We wrote notes during the week. We stopped by to buy him a Coke. After six months of loving John, the kids started to get tired. Gee, Ann, you don't know what it's like to love John. You call him at home to see how his week is going, and he says, Mm, okay. John, you say, I've really been thinking of you and I love you. And he just grunts. But I'll never forget the morning. We were all gathered together and suddenly John smiled. We had never seen John smile. He really smiled. After two weeks and two weeks later, when he laughed out loud, it nearly blew our minds. No one, ever, no one wanted John to notice, but they were all trying to signal me. Had I noticed, John laughed. He really laughed. Three weeks later, his mother, who was a non-Christian, the whole family was non-Christian, called me and said, Ann, last weekend we were in the mountains camping. John is 16, and I haven't seen him cry since he was five. But he started to cry and bawl and sob. And after four hours, I was almost frantic. And I asked him why he was crying like this. All he could say over and over was, I'm such a failure, Mom. I'm such a flop. And I finally said, it's that church you're going to. They're not treating you right. And he said as he shook his head, no, no. It's my only hope, Mom. They love me over there. And she said it seemed like the minute he said that, the minute he came out and shared that with me, he began to dry his tears. And he straightened his back and held his head up. And it's strange. He's never been the same since. And in the group, he began to laugh a lot. He began to share in conversational prayer when we prayed. He began to bring a friend on Sunday and two friends the next Sunday, and he became the best softball player we've ever had. For the first time in his life, he had the courage to play ball. Love changed John's life. Just love. You can do one of two things in your world. You can build a wall or you can build a bridge to every person you meet. I'm out to build bridges. Are you? And I've thought about that so many times, the opportunities that we have in the calling that Jesus has given us. And so he wanted to win, not coerce as many people as possible to Jesus. Now would you look at verse 24 through 27? Because it tells us how we're going to have to be serious about giving ourselves to this calling if we're going to be potent in our witness. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. 
Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. That word there means I will not be seen as counterfeit. And so if you're following along, notice that Paul borrows images from the athletic games in Corinth. Paul borrows images from the athletic games in Corinth. Can I just stop here and say something that fascinates me? He's been talking about looking for ways to relate. So he says, okay, I've got an idea. I know you guys love the games. Me too. So you remember the games? You remember how they train for the games? Think of that when you think about serving Jesus. This is not something that you just take casually. This is something you give yourself to wholeheartedly. And so uh, John MacArthur's put it this way. The Greeks had two athletic festivals, two great ones, the Olympic Games and the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games were held at Corinth and were therefore intimately familiar to those to whom Paul was writing. Contestants in the Games had to prove rigorous training for 10 months The last month was spent in Corinth with supervised daily workouts in the gymnasium and the athletic fields. The race was always a major attraction at the games, and that is the figure Paul uses first to illustrate the faithful Christian life. And so what he's saying here is not, hey, only one person wins. It's about competition. He's saying, no, think about how every one of those people train for one goal. So if you're following along, every athlete goes into demanding training for one goal. Every athlete goes into demanding training for one goal. That factory worker, what had happened is, is that he did not train himself. He just said, I can live any way I want at work. I can live any way I want at home. And therefore, if situations like that come up, he was not trained. He had not disciplined his body. He basically let his body dictate him. He went with the whims of his own body and did what he felt like doing. What happened is he wasn't ready. And friends, the only way you and I are going to be able to train ourselves is if we look at every opportunity. Say, Jesus, I know in my training I'm not going to get it perfect each time, but you're going to have to help me become more and more. I want to be more responsive. So I'm going to discipline myself not going to expect someone else to do it for me. I'm going to discipline myself so that my mind and my heart stay soft towards you. I stay close to you. And when I get it wrong, I come running back to you. God, show me. And he did that. And my goodness, what a difference. But he said it was for one goal. And if you're following along with his, with his eye on eternity, he gives himself fully to Jesus' call. With his eye on eternity, he gives himself fully to Jesus' call. In my study this week, I didn't realize this, but at the time Paul's writing this, he can picture this, but the wreath, the crown that the person would win when they won the Isthmian Games was made out of celery or parsley. Now think about that for just a minute. Wow. (laughs) Later it was made out of pine. But if you've ever seen any kind of plant like that, you know that within two or three days, what would it have looked like? And he's saying, they work that hard for something that's passing. Give yourself in such a way. And when he says, I don't want to be seen as disqualified, he's not talking about losing his salvation. He's talking about losing Christ's commendation. He doesn't want to stand before Jesus one day and Jesus not say, 
well done. You gave yourself. You were faithful even when it was hard. You trusted me with results even when it was discouraging and it looked like it was making no difference at all. Well done. He says, I want to live for that day and I want to live for a crown way better than celery or parsley or pine because the Lord will reward those who serve him along with the gift of salvation. And I am so thankful for that, aren't you? So how do we bring this home? How do we apply this? Well, let me just give you several ideas of evaluating your witness in this world. This is what I've been thinking about this week. I hope I've not sounded like someone who doesn't need to evaluate my own witness in this world. But the first question I've been asking myself is this one. Who am I intentionally getting to know that's still on the way? Who am I intentionally getting to know that's still on the way? Over the last 50 years, a common statistic that's often quoted is that within two years of a person becoming a Christian, they no longer have any non-Christian friends. It's so easy not to rub shoulders with you know, people that are still on the way. And as a pastor, it's especially easy for me. And so I've had to be very intentional it's one of the reasons I joined the Racket and Fitness Center to play tennis years ago. It's one of the reasons I volunteered at the Dana Thomas House in order to give tours at Frank Lloyd Wright House for 16 years. It's one of the reasons that I try and go to Little Saigon promiscuously <laughs> is so that I can get to know other people and get to know them enough to learn about them and hopefully build bridges. I heard a pastor once say that he stopped asking this question at pastor's conferences because he got so discouraged. He'd say, how many of you in the last 30 days have had a breakfast, lunch, or dinner with a person who doesn't yet believe? Friends, some of you have kids in soccer. Some of you have people you work with. Some of you have people in your own family. Are you, are you concerned about them? Paul said, I can name people because I care about and they may be Jews or Gentiles or weak people that need his help, but they could name him. Second, am I praying for open doors to point others to Jesus? Am I praying for open doors to point others to Jesus? Again, if I look at my life and I evaluate my life, here's what I've learned about myself. There are seasons I can point to where I was praying every day, oh Lord, Open a door in that person's life, whether you use me or someone else. Open a door. When I walk through my day, I'm going to be watching to see if there's open doors. Make it so obvious that even Jeff Nelson can't miss it. Open doors that I can point people to you because I'm so grateful. and I know life's about you and no one else. And here's what I've noticed, that when I pray, in those seasons when I am praying, more opportunities tend to come up. Not, auto, not always, but many times it's true. But I've noticed that my heart, when my heart begins to get colder, I stop praying and I don't seem to care. And people need me to care around me. It's not just about me. And the third thing is, is there anything in my life that contradicts or weakens my witness? Is there anything in my life that contradicts my, we my witness? This one, this one's uh, really one of the reasons why this message has been so important for me. I've seen several different ways whether it's in my words or my driving or what I watch or what it might be, where the Lord just says, be careful, it's not just about you. The influence you have on other people is important. Your witness matters. So I want to end with a story that I've often told before we take communion, but it just gives me so much hope. 
there was a missionary who was a Bible translator in another country, and the village he went to, he happened to find a man who could speak both English and the language he was translating the Bible into. And this man became a tremendous help to him. So every morning, they would gather for months and months and months to translate into this person's language the New Testament. An incredibly big task. Over the months and months, when they finally finished, I can't remember if it was a year or two later, as they were finishing, the missionary looked at this native man and said to him, he said, well, now that you've studied the New Testament and learned about Jesus, are you ready to become a Christian and follow Jesus? And the native man said to him, he said, I've never seen one. I don't know what it would look like to become a Christian. And the missionary went, I'm a Christian. He said, with all due respect, every morning, you know, I showed up to try and be helpful to you, but you complained almost the entire time. You talk about how hard it was and you wished you had more resources and other people to help you, and, and you just complained a lot. And this missionary paused and said, you are absolutely right. I now see how blind I've been and how that's affected you. Is there any way you could possibly forgive me and give me another chance to talk to you about Jesus? And this native man said to the missionary, now I'm beginning to see a Christian. It's not about being perfect. It's about being humble and teachable and correctable and leadable. He can use anyone who understands their call and humbly says yes. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook. Facebook.